0: And it's my pleasure and privilege to bring uh, the word from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 for, for us today. Uh, you could turn there in your Bibles. It's going to also be projected for you overhead. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Let me read this for us, and let's give our attention and reverence, for this is a reading of God's holy word. <coughs> my little children... I am writing writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. Can I pray for us real quick? Let's ask the Lord for his help. Lord, we thank you for your word which refines us, which softens our hearts, which opens our eyes, which causes us to know Christ more and more, just as we sang earlier today. Lord, would you speak to your servant now? And would you be with all of us here in this room? Grant us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Draw us near, keep us abiding in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people that it is very important to know what you know and what you don't know. We need to know what we know and what we don't know. It's almost a tongue twister. In fact, if you Google, know what you know or know what you don't know, all sorts of different phrases come out. You don't know what you don't know. You know what you know. And you know what you don't know. You know all sorts of crazy tongue twisters. But I would say the most important thing to know is whether you actually know something. And perhaps in the context of our passage, we should rephrase it. It is very important to know whether you know someone. John gives us a very frank warning in 1 John chapter 2. He gives us a warning about knowing that you know Christ. He says there are are many ways. He gives us many ways. In, In our passage today, he gives us a particular way that you know that you know Christ, that you are sure that you know Christ. And it naturally raises the question for us, Well, how do I know that I know Christ? How do I know this? And of course, when we talk about knowing Christ here, when John talks about it, he's not just talking about knowing of Jesus or knowing about Jesus or just knowing some qualities, some attributes of Jesus, knowing just some things he did, but he's talking about a personal relationship. Do you really know him? And so we raise that question. How do I even know? How do I know? that I know Christ. And John could have answered in multiple ways, but he doesn't give us some kind of sexy, spiritual-sounding, mysterious-sounding response. He doesn't give us some mystical experience. This is how you know Christ. You had this really mystical experience. You had a tingling somewhere in your body. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say that this is how you know Christ. You have very advanced theological knowledge. That's how you know you know Jesus. Through some really, you know, you know a lot of big words that pertain to theology. That's not what he gives us. That's not what he says when he says, here's how you know you know Jesus. In fact, he gives us something very simple and straightforward, actually. And he gives it to us in verse 3 of our text. And by this we know that we have come to know him, that is, Jesus Christ, if we keep his commandments, it's fairly simple and straightforward. Now, of course, he doesn't say, you get to know Jesus by keeping his commandments, but he says, you know that you know Jesus if you keep his commandments. It's a, it's a test of sorts. It's, it's fruit of a relationship. It's not a, a requirement, but a result. And then we have to, of course, concede that it is certainly possible to keep the commandments of Christ, at least externally, I'm not talking about the motives of the heart, but at least on the outside, to keep Christ's commands without actually knowing Him. That is possible, but it is impossible to know Him and not keep His commands. It is impossible to know Jesus, but to live a life characterized by not keeping His commands. That is a firm warning that John gives us today in 1 John chapter 2. And of course, it's not about perfection. After all, John just said one chapter ago in 1 John chapter 1, if anyone says that he doesn't sin, if anyone says he has no sin, he's lying. So we've established that. Of course, it's not about perfection it's not about never sinning, never breaking God's commands, but there's this idea that if, if you know Jesus, your life will be characterized by, by keeping his commands, not perfectly, but a desire to do so, seeking to do so. And it raises the question, do we, do we care about the commandments of Christ? Do we know the commandments of Christ? When we hear the word obey, And obedience as it relates to the commandments of Christ. Does it fill your heart with warmth? With pleasure? Or does this idea of obedience to Christ, does it it bring about hostility? John says that we are called to be a people. If you know him, you're going to keep his commands. And if this comes out all as a surprise to you, if if you're like, "What, what is this pastor talking about? Perhaps we need to offer a more full picture of the uses and the significance and the purpose of the law in the scriptures. Uh, historically, in Christian history, there theologians, many, many different theologians have said there are three uses of the law in the scriptures. I think in churches like ours, You might call them Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches. In churches like ours, I think we're very good at understanding the first two uses of the law. But sometimes we need to focus a little bit more on that third use. The first use of the law is the law as a mirror. You may have heard this before. This is so important. And I think we all love this use of the law. The law is like a mirror. The commandments of God is like a mirror. We we see in the law revealed the perfect holiness, the perfect righteousness of God. That's what his commands show us. It shows us, wow, God is holy. God is righteous. God cares about justice. God cares about that which is good. God hates evil. We see that in the law. And then when we look intently into the law, it's like a mirror and it shows us all our blemishes. It shows us all the ways we fall short. It shows us all the ways how much more we need Jesus. That is a very important use of the law. We call that the first use of the law. The law as a mirror. I think this one... And if you've been at our church for even a little while, I think you get this one very well. The second use of the law is called the civil use of the law. Uh, It's the law curbing and restraining evil. The best way to understand this one is just to think about laws when it comes to countries and governments. Where the law, it doesn't get rid of evil. It doesn't change hearts, but it curbs, it limits, it restrains evil. And that's the civil use of the law that we see in the scriptures. I think that one we can understand too. You don't even have to be Christian to understand that use of the law. The law as we generally understand it, even apart from theology and the Bible. But it's this third use I want to particularly emphasize and I think is particularly relevant to our passage today in 1 John chapter 2. It's this law as the guide. It's a guide. It reveals to us what is pleasing to God. And we care about what is pleasing to God. It's this idea that the law isn't what, what, what saves us. Of course, we don't, by, by keeping the commands and following the laws of God, that's not how we get saved. That's not how we get God to love us anymore. But we, because we are saved, because we are loved by God, because He loved us first, We care about the law still. We want to live in in, in a way that pleases him. We want to live in a way in which we do and care about and we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. And John is telling us today, this is a major part of the Christian life, this third use of the law. And if we're missing that, John is telling us today, you very well may not know Jesus. And I don't say that lightly. I know that's a big thing to say. But it must be said, it's a fair warning. John gives it to us. And perhaps this is the reason why. Often God feels very distant. Even though I've called myself Christian for a long time, I feel very far away from God. I feel like I don't really know him. This is how you know, John tells us. This is how we know we have come to know Jesus if we keep... His commandments. Jesus himself said it in his own way in John chapter 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Once again, very simple, very straightforward. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is important because it's a love thing. It's a relationship thing. To say, I know Jesus is a relationship thing. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's actually why in Psalm 119, the psalmist can say over and over again, I love your law. I love your law. God, I love your law. It's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? I love your law. I don't know a lot of people who say that except maybe when they're reading Psalm 119. But the only way this that statement, I love your law, makes sense, the only way it really makes sense and it's not that weird, is if you love the person to whom that law belongs then it makes sense to say, I love your law, because I love you, God, because I love Christ, because I know Christ, I actually love your law. You know, in all relationships, if you think about it, all relationships have built-in expectations, and might we even say built-in rules to them. All relationships do. If you love someone, there's going to be certain things you seek to do. If you love someone you're gonna to seek to do that which pleases them and refrain from that which displeases them. I don't know why I do this, but when I'm at home and I wanna lay on my couch or lay in my bed, I have this tendency to plop down super hard on the bed. I'm basically like jumping into the bed, jumping into the couch. And my wife Priscilla, she hates it. She hates when I do that. She gets so bothered, it's one of her pet peeves. And of course, she's just thinking about the longevity of our furniture. But for me, I don't know why I keep doing that. I just I, I, maybe I watched too much WWF wrestling growing up, and I just like to—I like when the couch makes a shake when I jump on it. But you know what? Because I love Priscilla, because I care about what she cares about. Yes, I do still do it a lot, but I don't want to. I don't want to, and I try not to. In fact, Priscilla was out of town today, and I said to myself, Priscilla is not watching but I'm still gonna just lay on that couch very gently, lay on the bed very gently when I get on it. Why? Because I love her. Not because she's gonna love me any less if I do do that. Or I hope she doesn't, right? Maybe she loves me a little bit less when I do that, every time I do that. But the idea is that's what you do when you love someone. That's what you do when you're in a relationship with someone. You seek to do that which pleases them and you seek to refrain from that which displeases them. And if that's true about our human relationships, how much more? our relationship with God. Once again, and Jesus definitely is not like Priscilla. Jesus will not love you any less or any more. And yet we still seek to keep his commandments. We seek to please him. We seek to do that which he cares about, to love that which he loves, hate that which he hates, because we know him. And more importantly, because we are known by him. And because his love can't help but change us, can't help but grow us, can't help but make us a people who seek to please Him, who, to seek to keep His commands. And so I, I want us to ask ourselves once again, do, do I even care about His commandments? Do I have a lax attitude about sin? Do I live a life characterized by sin? As John says a chapter ago, do I walk in darkness? If you know Jesus, that, it, that should not be the case. If you know Jesus, it means that there is a change. Once again, not perfection, but progress. It means there is fruit. And it means we can zoom out. Some of us, I think, uh, we're, we're sometimes too hard on ourselves. But we need to be able to zoom out and, and look at our life in Christ and say, Is Christ doing something here? he there? Is he there? Is he changing me, even if it's little by little every day, little by little every way? I love that song. It's a kid's song from many years ago. Really important theology in that song. And I pray that you wouldn't take John's warning lightly. I pray that that is a minority in this room who think they know Jesus, but don't but I I, I think it is beneficial and fruitful and important for all of us to take this passage to heart. We have come to know that we know him if we keep his commandments. But John doesn't just stop there. John also goes on to show us and tell us that if you know Christ, you know Christ as your advocate. He uses this big word, this important word, advocate. He says, Christ is your advocate. My, my dear children, my little children, that, that first phrase he opens up with when he calls us my little children, when he calls the church my little children, that's a term of an affection, of endearment. It can even be translated, my dear children. I love that it's this balanced view. He says, I'm writing to you, yes, so that you won't sin. I don't want you to sin. God doesn't want you to sin. But then he goes on to say, but if you do sin, when you do sin, you have Christ, the righteous one, as your advocate. So important. Jesus is your advocate. That means that Jesus is your representative. Jesus is the one who stands up for you. Jesus is the one who is like your defense attorney. We just confessed it together in the Heidelberg Catechism. Jesus pleads your cause to the Father. I love that. I love that. It's Jesus who came who came down to this earth and who represented us in his life, obeying perfectly what we failed to do. He's the only one who perfectly kept the commandments of God. And he did that in our place. He did that as our representative. He's the only one who is truly, perfectly righteous. And his righteousness, if you are in him, if you know him, if you trust him, if your faith is in him, his righteousness is placed on you. But I don't want to stop there when we talk about Jesus as our advocate. Jesus is continually pleading your cause. In other words, he is continually supporting you. Continually cheering you on, continually strengthening you, even now. Would you believe that? Would you believe that, that even now, it wasn't just on that cross that Jesus was your advocate, but even now, even in this very moment, even in the midst of your deepest struggles, even in your darkest times, even when you're stumbling, and not only stumbling, but you're falling, and you're on the ground, he is your advocate. He's greater than any life coach. And not only that, he sends another advocate to strengthen and guide you and lead you and and support you, and that's his Holy Spirit. We have to remember both. When we know Jesus as our advocate, it, it frees us from actually two erroneous understandings of Christianity. He frees us from two extreme opposite errors, and that's legalism and antinomianism. Big words, but very straightforward concepts. Legalism, of course, is this, this mentality, this, this belief, and sometimes we don't say it out loud, but we believe it in our hearts, and we show it with our actions that we're, in which we use the law to merit salvation. We use the law to gain God's favor. We, we think to ourselves, if I keep God's commandments, then he will love me more, he will bless me more. Uh, if I keep his commandments, then, then I'm closer to heaven and I have to keep his commandments to go to heaven. That's the error of legalism. On the other opposite extreme, we have antinomianism. Antinomianism says that because I'm saved, because Jesus died on the cross and my sins are forgiven, I can do whatever I want. Doesn't matter how I live. Because I'm saved, sin doesn't matter. Sin's not that severe. It's all good and once again maybe we don't say that with our lips but oftentimes I'll be the first to confess I display that with the attitudes of my heart but the gospel when we know Jesus as our advocate he actually frees us from both of those errors because legalism makes you only care about becoming a better person but you do that without Jesus you do that without the cross you do that without the resurrection and antinomianism makes us so that we never become a better person. We, don't, we never care to. And what John warns us is that may mean that you don't know Christ. But the gospel frees us from both. When Jesus is your advocate, he frees you from both. He frees you from that pointing finger of Satan, that accusing, condemning finger of Satan, of legalism. He frees you from that pointing finger, but he also frees you from that luring finger of Satan. That that excusing, tempting, enticing finger of Satan. Satan is crafty. He doesn't just get us in one way. He sometimes, he makes us oscillate. He tries to get you with legalism. He tries to get you with antinomianism. In Revelation, he's called the accuser. He's really good at accusing. He's really good at saying, wow, look at what you did. Look at yourself. How can God love you? He's good at lying to you like that. But he's not only just the accuser, he's the excuser. In the garden with Adam and Eve, he said, did God really say that? Surely you won't die. It's not a big deal. Don't worry, just do it. It's fine. He's crafty. He's both accuser and excuser. But what the gospel does, what Jesus as your advocate does, is he gives you something that legalism and antinomianism can never give us. He gives us grace. He gives us grace. He gives us grace to forgive sin. But please don't stop there. John says, please don't stop there. He also gives us grace to fight sin. Not only just to forgive, as important and as as essential and fundamental as that is. Yes, we need to know only in Christ, only because of what he's done are my sins forgiven. But also because of Christ, because of what he's done, because he's risen again and given us new life, and he's given us changed hearts, and he's made us a new creation. Not only are my sins forgiven, not only does he forgive sins, but now I can fight sins. I have the power to fight. Not within myself, but from Christ alone. I have power and freedom against Satan as both accuser and excuser. And when Jesus is your advocate, it makes us a people who are able to be real with ourselves. A people who are able to say, yeah, why why am I doing that? Why do I excuse myself? Why do I have this attitude Why do I feel that way about that person? Why do I talk that way about those people? It allows us to be real with ourselves and not excuse ourselves. But it also allows us to not be too hard on ourselves, beating ourselves up, condemning ourselves. That's the power we have when Jesus is your advocate. It makes us a people, yes, who stumble and even fall, but we continue to get back up It makes us a people who, when we sin, we repent, and we continually repent. It makes us a people, even when we fail to keep the commandments of God, we still strive to keep the commandments of God. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Not because it's a requirement, but because it's a result. It's a response. I love this one poem by... uh, a uh, English poet and hymn writer by the name of William Cooper. It looks like it's spelled Cowper, but it's actually pronounced Cooper as far as I know. And it's a poem called Love Constraining to Obedience. And I love, this is just the last stanza. It's a great poem. And here's what he writes. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled. Once again, he is our advocate. He's the one that did it in our place. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child, and duty, into choice. I love that. It makes us actually want to do these things. It makes us actually choose to do these things. And not out of slave-like fear, but out of child-like joy and love and obedience. Not a slave's obedience, but a child's obedience. A child who loves their father it turns duty into choice if you know jesus my brothers and sisters if you know jesus would you keep choosing keep choosing to repent keep choosing to fight against sin especially because you're forgiven keep choosing to seek change little by little every day keep choosing to ask for help to seek help Keep choosing to strive to keep His commands. Not because you have to, but because you get to. I know these are heavy thoughts to ask yourself. Do I really know Jesus? And maybe I don't. I don't take that lightly at all. And perhaps for some of you, you've asked yourself that very question. Perhaps for some of you, you're asking yourself now, what if I don't know Jesus? What if I've zoomed out and I've really looked and I wasn't too hard on myself. I just looked at the the, the fruit of my life and there are no commandments kept. There is no character. It is not characterized by keeping the commandments of God. Not perfectly, but progressively. Well, what do I do then? Now, the answer I'm not going to give you is just keep his commandments, right? Because we have to be clear on that. John does not say, by keeping his commandments, you know Jesus. By keeping his commandments, he knows you. That's not what he says. He says keeping his commandments is the result, the fruit. But if I don't know him, what do I need to do? What can I do? I, want, I don't know him, but I want to know him. What can I offer you as a preacher of the gospel except to look, take a good look at Jesus? Jesus. Take a good look at our righteous advocate, our wonderful advocate, and especially take a look at the cross. Passion Week is only a week away, so it's great timing. Would you take a good look at the cross? Of course, we don't have to wait for Passion Week to look at the cross every week for the Christian. Every Friday is a good Friday. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. We always want to be preaching and teaching and thinking and preaching to ourselves The cross of Jesus Christ. And would you take a good look at it? John does in verse 2 of our text. He says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He uses this big word once again, but a very important word. He is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We have to define that. We don't assume that we all know that word. Propitiation. Uh, In the NIV translation of the Bible, it actually uses the word atoning sacrifice. Not a bad translation. Atoning sacrifice. Webster's Dictionary defines propitiate as to gain or regain the favor or goodwill of. That's not a bad definition either. I would say theologically speaking, when we talk about gaining the favor or goodwill of God, There's actually a flip side that we cannot miss. Not only is it trying to gain the favor of God, but it's actually trying to get rid of the wrath of God. Propitiation should always make you think of the wrath of God, of the wrath of God being warded off, the wrath of God being put away. I like how the theologian John Stott puts it. Propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, by the love of God, it's the love of God that brings about this propitiation. By the love of God, through the gift of God, which of course is his only son, Jesus Christ. You know, in the church today, I think we don't talk very much about the wrath of God. That phrase is a little out of style, perhaps. And yet we can never lose that. The wrath of God is something we, sh- we should never lose because that's part of who God is. It's part of the fact that he is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, that he has wrath against sin. If we have a big understanding of God, then, we will under- then it makes sense he has wrath against sin. Of course, this is righteous anger. It's not a temper tantrum. It's not like our road rage when we're driving. This is a righteous anger, and it is a real and powerful anger. And it is real. And when we look at that cross, I do hope that you see also the wrath of God. Because a cross is not a pretty picture. A cross is terrifying. A cross is, dare I even say, ugly. Ugly gruesome. And when Jesus died on that cross, he didn't just get physical pain, right? It's not like the passion of the Christ where you just see a lot of physical pain. But on that cross, he experienced the full wrath of God. Jesus basically went through hell on that cross. And that should move us, that should shake us. I watched a very funny viral video recently, and I didn't think that I'd be sharing about it in a sermon because it's such a silly and funny video, but it actually occurred to me, to my delight, that it actually relates. This video, I I sent it to a bunch of people that I I know because I thought it was so funny. It's a video of a young mom, and she's trying to feed her small child, this little boy, pretty much a baby. And she tries to feed the boy, but the, the boy goes, no, and shakes his head furiously, doesn't want to eat, refuses to eat. And what this mom does next is, depending on how you look at it, either genius or, or cruel. She takes out a doll, a little teddy bear, and then she pretends to feed the doll and then shakes the doll's head, no. And then what she does next is gangster. She straight up starts to punch that doll so hard and her face gets so scary and she's just punching that doll over and over again. And you see that small child, the boy, you see the gears turning. He's just watching like, what is happening right now? And then guess what happens? She, she puts the doll away, gives the baby his food and he eats it right away. No problem, yes, give me more, mom. I, I love to eat, I love to eat my food. Now, of course, there's much, much differences, many, many differences between God and this young mom. But I think there is an important thread. When that mom was hitting that baby all gangster, the son, the little boy, he, he got to see very clearly. This is how a mom feels about me not eating. It's, a, it's, it's bad. It's a bad thing that I'm not eating. I need to eat. And on that cross... We see how God feels about sin. We see how God feels about injustice. We see how God feels about evil. We see how God, God feels about selfishness. We see how God feels about all the ways that I fail to love him and I fail to love, his, uh, love my neighbors. We see the wrath of God. Now, of course, this little doll was not this boy's savior. He was just an example. But Christ was no example. Christ came as our savior. Christ came as our substitute. Christ came as our advocate. He came as the propitiation for sins. He would come and he would just take all that wrath upon himself. He would drink that cup, that cup of God's wrath, down till it was empty. And he would take it all so that you would never have to experience the wrath of God ever. You never have to experience God's righteous, holy anger against sin because he took it all. And when you look at that cross, would you, I want you to see the wrath of God. Please see the wrath of God. Please see how he feels about sin and rebellion and godlessness. But would you also see that much more the love of God? That much more that he didn't just leave you there. That it's not just an appeasement of wrath, but it's an appeasement of wrath by the love of God, through the gift of God. That his love for you, his care for you, his desire to bring you back into his household was that much greater than his wrath. So that Jesus himself, the only begotten son, he'd be the one to take it. That God himself would be the one to take that wrath. And when you look at that cross, would you see Big wrath, scary wrath even, but that much more a big love, an amazing love, an amazing grace that treats sinners like friends, that brings enemies and turns them into sons and daughters. Would you know that Christ, that advocate, that propitiation, and would that be what causes you to say, yes, I want to know him. I want to be known by him. I want to follow him. I want to even keep his commandments. Not because I have to, but because I get to. When you hear a message like this, when we talk a lot about keeping the commandments of Christ, even though we're saying this is not the way we get saved, this is not how you get God to love you, I still think sometimes in our own hearts, we can sometimes take it the wrong way. I've sat through some sermons where I walked out feeling like the pastor was saying, look at what Jesus did for you. Now, what are you going to do for him? Look what he did for you. Don't you want to do more for him now? Don't you want to pay him back? You owe him. I don't think that's the most helpful way of thinking about it, right? I think there is some truth to saying because of who Christ is and all he's done, yes, he deserves all our love, all our, all our discipleship, all, all of our lives and our hearts and our strength, of course. But let me, perhaps can I offer you just uh, perhaps a more helpful way of thinking about it when it comes to following the commandments of Christ. Few, several years ago, I had, I had a good friend who was very sick, and he was in the hospital for about, I want to say, two to three months very long time, he was very sick. And he was stuck in that hospital bed for about two, more than two months. I can't even imagine what that's like. If I hope we don't have to experience that. If you have, I'm sure you can relate. I mean, my wife Priscilla, she had a major surgery last year. We were stuck in the hospital for a week, and I was dying to get out of there. I think I wanted to leave the hospital more than she did. She was the one who needed the surgery. And when the, when the doctor said, okay, or you're discharged, it was a two-hour drive back home, but it was the easiest two-hour drive of my life. I wanted to get out of there so bad. I can't even imagine two months for my friend. And thank the speed of God that he did get better, and he was eventually discharged after about two months. And can you imagine if when the doctor said, you know, you're better now, you're free to go, You don't have to be stuck in this hospital bed anymore. You don't have to be stuck in this hospital anymore. Could you imagine if my friend said, I like it here. I'm not going to leave. I don't need to get out of this hospital bed, this uncomfortable hospital bed, this dreary hospital. I'm just going to stay here. I'll, I'll live here now. Can you imagine if he did that? That'd be crazy, right? But so often I think when we don't care to keep the commandments of God, when we don't seek to obey and live a life of obedience, we're basically saying, I I, I like my hospital bed. I like being in the hospital. I like, I know, oh, I know there's a, there's a whole world outside those hospital doors. Oh, I know there's a whole life to be lived out off of this hospital bed, but I like it here. It's crazy. Once again, Jesus as your advocate not only frees you from the guilt of sin, not only does he free you from the accusing finger of Satan and even the wrath of God, but Jesus as your advocate frees you from that hospital bed. He frees you from the chains of sin. He frees you from that luring finger of Satan. He frees you from being stuck. He actually says, you can go. You can go. You can live. You can live the Christian life. I like what one author says. He says, the Christian life is a life. It's a life to be lived. It's not just Christian thought. It's not just Christian philosophy. It's a Christian life. And what Jesus did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, as your advocate, was to make you forgiven, make you cleansed, adopt you into the household of God, yes. But we don't stop there. He also, what he did was to free you. To say, go, live, obey, not as a slave, but as a child, not out of fear, but out of joy. Not so that you know me, but because you know me and because I know you. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you, we worship you, we are grateful for our wonderful righteous advocate, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray against the craftiness and schemes of Satan. For some of us, it's legalism. For some of us, it's antinomianism. For some of us, it's both, just depends on the day of the week. But Lord, would you remind us again, as we look to that cross, what an advocate we have. What a defense we have. What a supporter we have. And would that be what makes all the difference? Lord, we don't want to walk out of here just saying, I have to keep his commandments. I have to, I have to. Lord, we want to walk out of here saying, look at this advocate. Why wouldn't I keep His commandments? Lord, I pray especially now for those who don't know You. Perhaps they've discovered that they don't know You. Or draw their eyes, turn their faces, not inward and at themselves, but upward, especially to that cross. And would that be what draws Your people near to You? Would that be what draws lost sons and daughters back to your household? Would Christ, his life, his death and resurrection be what makes your church and strengthens your church and builds your church? We humbly ask this in Jesus' name, amen.